0: I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I'm excited to present this panel after we tried so hard. Originally, I had grander plans and bigger plans for this panel. And really what happened was there was a debate online about this amazing year in science fiction 1968. And we wanted to talk about the power of this year in 1968. uh, Because It's just really a banner year in science fiction. But before we get into that, just uh, really quickly, um, I need to do uh, a a little bit of shouting out my own stuff. Um, I do have a book tour coming up for my new release, The Last Night to Kill Nazis in Southern California. So if you're in Southern California, it's with Cody Goodfellow and cyberpunk legend John Shirley. And we're going to be hitting three cities. Uh, San Diego for the official Last Night to Kill Nazis book release party uh, at Mysterious Galaxies in San Diego. And then uh, Artifact Books in Encinitas. Uh, This is September 14th through the 17th. So then that Saturday on the 16th will be at uh, Artifact Books in Encinitas and Dark Delicacies in Los Angeles on that Sunday. So, um, I well, you should come out for John Shirley anyways. Uh, regardless of me and Cody but you know he wrote The Crow come on you gotta you want to you want to show up for that so and then um anyways just introduce myself if you're here for 1968 and you've never been to my podcast before I'm also an author if you want to read my science fiction I put out a book called Nightmare City last year that is um I've described it as um the wire if Clive Barker and Philip K. Dick were on the writing staff um and that came out last year and that's all I got for me that's a lot of me um Lisa Yazik is returning to the show we have podcasted together like seven or eight times because she is awesome she's one of my favorite guests um and Lisa was just on the show so she's a professor of science fiction studies at Georgia Tech we're not going to go super far into her background because I suggest you listen to the interview that I just did with her on The Future is Female, her most recent book. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, David. It's great to be back.
0: Right. And definitely listen to that interview on The Future is Female. Now, joining us for the first time is Brian Collins, who is, um, some of you will know his blog, Sci-Fi uh, Remembrance um it's one of my favorites because um and i'm not gonna out you for being a young buck except for well i guess i am but one of the things i love about brian's work is that he um is a a millennial and a younger person who is obsessed with reviewing reading and researching science fiction of mid-century ish uh times and uh so Brian, tell other folks who you are and where how you got into science fiction.
2: Basically, I watched, I'm pretty sure it started when I watched Jurassic Park when I was like three years old. Like that was my first like taste of the genre in any way that I can remember because I must have been, yeah, it was on like VHS in the late 90s. And basically at that point, my understanding of science fiction for several years was, Basically, monster movies, which isn't like you know, a bat, it's not the worst reference point, right? Right, um, but like, I actually did not start reading science fiction with any enthusiasm until I was in like sixth or seventh grade, I was like a bit late to the party, um, and I actually started reading like this is such a weird combo. I started reading H.G. Wells and Michael Crichton at around the same time. And those two authors have like very little in common, but, um, you know, I read the time machine and I read the Andromeda strain and all that. And basically, um, that started my life as a, as an SF reader, although I didn't start like more with more enthusiasm until high school. And that was basically when I discovered Philip K. Dick, right. Um, and we're going to be discussing, do Android Dream of Electric Sheep later, but that was my first Philip K. Dick novel. So it was it'll a always lot have of a... our
0: first Philip K. Dick
2: novel. I think it. I think it is for most people actually, just because yeah. it is the most famous. But um, God, is it my favorite? Even I don't. I'm not sure. It it it's like like a three way tie, depending on my mood. With that, Ubik and Martian Time Slip. Actually, I think that's a, a really overlooked one. I'm but, a three um, stigmata guy, so three
0: stigma, yeah. <laughs> um, I like the dark stuff, but so how did you get into mid century and like you know, you like know,
2: 50s, 60s? Um, yeah. kind of, yeah. Um, basically, I read that in high school. I read a lot of Asimov, I read a bit of Heinlein, I read some Clark, you know, the big three, I guess, and a few others. Um, in high school, it was because. That stuff was easy to read. If I'm being honest, like the the prose is not terribly demanding. If you're reading Asimov, um, or Philip K. Dick for that matter, it's kind of like beige, on like the spectrum, kind of beige prose. Um, so that was the SF that I gravitated towards because writing of that period kind of tended towards not like, like bad exactly, but like function only. Right, it's functional, but it's not fancy. It's not terribly demanding.
1: They called um, it the literature of engineers at that time, right? And I think that which, that's the vibe. So, which in yeah.
2: some, which in some cases, that was literally true. Yeah, you know, it was written yeah. by by engineers, but um, but yeah, that that that's why I'll I will always have a soft spot for kind of pre New Wave SF because so much of it, even like the bad stuff, is so readable, and um, and I'm pretty upfront about this. I'm not a very good reader. <laughs> um, even after all this time, I'm a slow reader, and I have to like kind of. I take a lot of notes for my blog because I do kind of struggle to retain information. But with older SF, it's easier to do all this. Um, But yeah, if you have like a younger person and they haven't read terribly demanding literature yet, I would introduce them to like real, real, but um, kind of classic science fiction with the pre-New Wave stuff.
0: Well, and some of the things that that you've been doing, and and I do want to point this out, is that, for example, for Unfinished PKD, I was studying a Fritz Lieber book called Destiny Draws 3. And it's almost a lost book. And your review of it was one of the most extensive things I found on the internet about Destiny Draws 3. Because you're doing a lot of lost um, science fiction from the pulp magazines, is a lot of the stuff that you're reading and reviewing. And for somebody who's, you know, a millennial, to be taking so seriously some of this lost 40s and 50s science fiction is really cool. So I do want to shout you out for that, Brian, because uh, you made my book uh, writing about destiny draws three for sure. So. It might be the,
2: it might be the most extensive writing on that novel because if only because so is. so little I, I has been you, written it about it. It, it, it is so obscure, but um, yeah, I actually started my site because I, I still contribute to, um, Uh, young people read old SFF. Um, But basically when I started writing for that site, um, which if you don't know, is basically a monthly book club thing where people, as a rule under the age of 30, uh, read and review quote unquote classic SF, um, which at this point basically means 1990, but it used to mean 1980, whatever. Um, And for one... uh, I wanted to write i wanted to engage more with classic works but also there were certain attitudes in the book club where some people like were not willing to engage actually like properly with the material whereas sometimes you know we wait a month and we would write up our reviews and some of it would basically be i didn't like this because of this or whatever or i didn't get it or something like that and i'm like come on like you know try just a little bit harder I mean, this, it takes a lot of, and I've written stuff before, it takes a lot of time and effort to even write kind of middling, you know, trashy stuff. You could at least try to engage with it on its own terms a bit more. So that's what I've been trying to do.
0: Right. So we're going to talk about 1968. And um, Lisa and I kind of previewed this a little bit in her Futures Female interview. And the first thing I want to do is talk about what the world was like in 1968. If you're a science fiction fan and you're gonna be driving to St. Louis Con for the Hugos that year, well, well, it would have been 69 when they had the actual awards for the books written in this year. But if you're looking in 1968 and what the world's like in 1968, it's a very important time. Um, and for example, some of the historical events that happened, Nixon was, ele- was elected, we all know how that went. Um, the Tet Offensive was that year, which was a huge turning point in the Vietnam War. Um, Robert Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., and Martin Luther King were assassinated. We had Prague Spring. You had um, Apollo Eight circling the moon, and the Democratic Convention are all like big news events. But culture was changing. Lisa, did you? Can you give us a little bit about? Because I know you you did some research into. And have talked about the, the major change in feminism in 1968, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I teach classes on this, so I will try to keep this short and not semester length. But right. This is really the moment, though, when we see the revival of feminism, um, along with all kinds of progressive politics in America. But, you know, 68 is a pretty banner year in a lot of ways. We're two years into the National Organization for Women um and we're beginning to actually see legislative results so I think that's the year that you have an executive order that says that you can no longer do gender-based discrimination in um, employment advertising which is massive we're uh they're introducing the legislation that's going to force all federally funded universities and colleges to allow women into all graduate programs uh and shout out to Georgia Tech we were one year ahead 1986 we had women in our all our graduate programs and we were building women only dorms so good on us but the first national women's liberation conference was held that year it was the year that the term the women's liberation movement was coined it's also the year we got the phrase consciousness raising and then finally i'd point out that this is year one when states begin to re-legalize abortion california led the way so shout out to california which is still at the forefront of reproductive rights i'd say and we have the National Abortion Rights Action League founded as well. So we're seeing a lot of changes, both in terms of women's reproductive health, women's professional lives. You know, it's a it's it's an exciting moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I was looking at the science fiction awards, too. And 67, 68, those are the last years that they're do- male-dominated awards. I mean, female the female invasion begins in 68 and 69. That's really exciting.
0: Female so it's happening invasion. everywhere. Right. Well, in your and- sex,
1: in your workplace, and in your literature.
0: <laughs> right. Well, in the 60s, are, are an interesting, vibrant time throughout the 60s for uh, the award in general, for the awards in science fiction in general. But we also had some stinkers in those years. Uh, now, uh, Brian and Seth Heasley just recently had to go through the pain of covering The Wanderer by Fritz Lieber, which a lot of people believe, including myself, is one of the worst books ever uh, to win the Hugo. <laughs> and it that is. was it, in there. And, this and is one of the as, worst. Yeah. Well, and as much as like some of the uh, award, some of the Hugos from the 60s are very, really interesting. For example, the fact that you can Call Me Conrad tied with Dune. And I like Zelazny, but I don't think that book holds a candle to Dune. So it's very hard to look at that. And then you have Cat's Cradle losing to As Much as I Love Way Station by Clifford Sumak. It's a great book. I don't know that it's better than Cat's Cradle, for example. And so when whenever you look at these years, you could debate any of these years. But the reason why we're talking about 68 is it's like a hinge point, not only in history, but in science fiction, where this is the year where most of the books that are nominated, um, regardless of who wrote them, have like that new wave flavor or feel. They all do. Like, in the past, you always had, you know, um, because here's the thing, even Clifford Samac's book, The Goblin Reservation, has a new wave. It, it's like he's being influenced a little bit by the new wave. It doesn't have the old pastoral feeling that some of the Somac did. So I just really look at this year as a hinge point. And I don't know if, if you two feel that way too about it, but it just it just seems like a radical um. Arena that we've got going on here in in these nominations in general, Lisa. Uh, I, I don't know. Do you feel this hinge point? Oh, a hundred,
1: hundred, a hundred percent. I actually was running percentages of like uh, male to female nominees and winners. Like you know, for the '60s and '70s when I was putting together the future is female too, and like it's right around 68. Like I said, that you see a shift. Like the the, the awards are solidly like I mean, solidly male dominated. Like there are often no women in them, even as nominees but around 68, first of all, you start to see that change. Um, but it's also the years that women start really representing heavily and disproportionately to the, to the percentages as like, it's about 15% female in the community, but suddenly it's going to be like, I mean, it's not hugely statistically significant, but like 18% of the nominees are going to jump to women, um, in the Cugos and 25% in the nebulas, which is truly significant. So yeah. And it starts at this year with um, Anne McCaffrey and Joanna Russ and Ursula Le Guin. And I think that's how I ended up in this conversation is you were talking on social media about all the guys. And yeah, I was kind of like, out. my you friend, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my friend, it's a hinge year for many other reasons. So yeah. So thanks for having me here. And no, sorry to no. drop the bomb on your plan. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, you called me out and you were right too, because I, when I made a list of the books that if people wanted to read along, you know, with 68 and I did not And I admit I I've been saving Joanna Russ and we talked about this in the futures, female interview, and I'm no longer saving Joanna Russ. I have the female man sitting on my TBR right now. And, um, you know, this pushed me to, to check it out. And I'm kind of glad I started with her first book, but we'll get to picnic in paradise in a little bit. And we're definitely going to drill down on it because I think it's a great, 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 great entry in this year. And it's one of the things that makes this year great. Um, but let's let's talk about a little bit about the about the award was given in St. Louis. Um, and this is one of the few years I didn't see anything about a Toastmaster. A lot of the earlier years you always get like
1: It's Ellison. It's, for for Ellison? the Hugos? Yeah. So we're talking the Hugos, right? It's Ellison. Yes.
0: It was yeah. Ellison, okay. And um so and you had um for that year um a really interesting um mix of nominees for the hugos so you have stand on zanzibar which we're going to talk about later nova which we're going to talk about later and then um the past past master by r.a. um Lecafri,
2: which... Lafferty,
0: Lafferty. sorry um i'm just i got them i you know what name i messed it up with uh mccaffrey has got in my head um Lafferty is an interesting writer. I'm not a big fan of his work because I find it a little stodgy myself. Um, I tried reading parts of this book for for the, for for this, and I was very uninterested. Um, I will admit to that. Um, I don't see the there there when you compare it to the other books that are nominated here. But the novel follows an attempt at a future utopia, and it's mostly a sh- it's like a series of short stories collected together to make a novel and it looks like a fix-up but it's a time travel story with a utopia and i'm not saying it's bad i'm just saying i didn't connect to it at all For what and it's worth
2: i also actually bounced off it um when i tried reading it uh
0: yeah. yeah and i just um i i don't think it's one that held up very well compared to some of the ones that didn't get nominated even or some of the ones from this year so i don't i mean he's a very r.a L- um lafferty trying, is not, trying not to love. say it
1: again <laughs> i did it again
2: did i he, no no you, it you... seems
1: like he's a really specialized taste doesn't he like i've never he... been able to get through his short stories and like but i know people who love him and people i love and respect so like you know, know it's, the... it's interesting yeah Nick i know neil, is i know a big fan too.
2: i know neil gaiman swears by him i personally like the short stories i've read of him i don't love him or anything like that and i like i said i I could not get into past master for the life of me um it's kind of like willfully obscure and kind of oh ain't he quirky you know
0: (laughs) yeah so yes the the next nomination that we're going to talk about is one that i think was a another lifetime achievement award which is um, The Goblin Reservation by Clifford Samac. And look, I, I'm a Samac fan. I've done tons of podcasts about Samac. Um, so I've done Waystation on Hugo's there. I've done uh, Waystation on our podcast. I've done, we did a whole episode on his uh, football story from the 30s. The, um, so I like Samac, not anti simak In fact, I think City is one of the greatest science fiction novels of the 50s
2: that being said
0: <laughs> goblin reservation very influenced by the era he's trying to catch up with the young bucks and get weird and that's fine it's a very funny book it's um it's about and i haven't read it in a long time but it educated neanderthal and uh, kind of robotic saber tooth tiger like move through time it's very weird and i'll give you that and it's worth reading it's very funny but i don't think it holds a candle to a lot of these other books so has anybody else read this one from simac i will probably read
2: it for the sake of reviewing it at some point because it was serialized in galaxy originally so it's up it's up for my site i'll cover it and i do like simac um more short fiction but city is incredible um god he should have gotten the first hugo for that but i'm getting sidetracked i don't i don't (laughs) want to get hung up on it
0: I think we all agree City is a work of, of genius and a master, uh, master. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I like some of his later stuff. It's, I think it's called Project Pope. It's like from the 1980s. And it's like a future where like the only Catholicism is all over the galaxy, but only because robots have taken it over, which as someone who grew up cradle Catholic totally makes sense. Like I, no one but a robot could truly understand and enact Catholicism well, if you ask me. So.
0: Yeah, Project Project Pope is a really great book. I have a copy that our rabbits chewed it's on. It's weird. It's um, cool. Oh.
1: <laughs> I hope that enjoyed it.
0: <laughs> yeah, they enjoyed it too, but but I, I just but I think of Project Pope the first thing I think of is the giant chunks that the rabbits ate out of it. Um, <laughs> so uh but um the other big nominee and this is one that I admit I have not read yet and it's just because I um I'm ta- I'm waiting for the library to send it to me. Is "Rite of Passage" by Alexi Panshin, who we mm-hmm. uh, just recently lost last year. He just passed away last year, and um, he's a, a great commentator on science fiction. I have his uh, "What's the World Beyond the Hill?" The world, the world, the
2: world beyond the hill. Which I, I did that. also. That's incredible. Totally recommend um, that he wrote yeah. with his wife. But um, I also feel bad because I've been meaning to read "Rite of Passage." for this for this podcast and I never got around to it I think it's out of print
0: it is so out of print. I, would, I
2: would I would have to find a used copy
0: yeah and so this book and I read a lot about it so I can tell you a lot about it but I I have to admit that I have not read it yet um and Pansion's non-fiction book is on my shelf so it's one that I I plan to read soon um when I get uh done with unfinished PKT um but Panshin's book has been compared to like a generation ship meets hunger games, is the way I've heard it described by a couple people who have read it. And it is kind of a it's written with a juvenile audience in mind. And it's about this um generation ship that has like these like kind of combat battles in order to keep the um uh population down, is is best that I can tell from it. Now what I've Read about it is is that it's a really fun novel, but comparatively to some of the ones that we're going to be talking about is written for juveniles. So um Panshin wasn't really trying to write like a high-class, like top-of-the-line science fiction novel. He was trying to write a marketable book for juveniles. So that doesn't mean it's bad. We've had a lot of really wonderful juveniles written by science fiction authors, but um you know, and I know that term juveniles is, is out of date. We say YA now, but at the time that was, that was industry standard. So I think those are all the ones that got nominated for the Hugo that were just want to mention on the front of the nebulas. We had black Easter by James Blish nominated, which if you haven't read that it's more of a sci-fi horror novel. I'd almost say it's more, it's a very dark novel, Black Easter, um, and uh, James Blush is kind of most known for writing the Star Trek episode adaptations, which is too bad because he wrote some really great science fiction like Cities in Flight. It's and... Surface
1: Tension. I don't know if you've ever read that short. It's a novella, Surface Tension. It's like an, It was one of the stories that inspired um, uh, the, the sort of one. way it's that a, nanoscience got founded because it... it's a small-scale engineering story.
2: I was going to say, is it a pocket universe? It's not pocket. It's like like incredibly well, puddle tiny puddle universe. They're in a puddle they're, universe. They're a that's planet. more like it.
1: Yeah, they're they they they're human colonists. They crash land on a planet that's like basically all six inch puddles and rock and nothing else. And they're like, well, hell. So they uh, engineer themselves down to nanoscale. Essentially, that's what we would say now. And. Um, life begins again and um, they have to sort of re-evolve. And, you know, their space race is actually a puddle race. They've got to, you know, figure out the surface tension of the water and how to break out of the water to get to the next puddle of water. So it's very exciting. It's a space colonization story in in the water.
0: That's, that's oh, That oh, sounds oh, really great. It's my also- student,
1: oh, can I just say one more thing? Yeah. I had students once who did a dramatic enactment of the first scene of the water landing, it, all in food, and they made like a gigantic um, punch out of it. So like they had the, yeah, it was great. So it's very, very visual and can be done in different mediums, including uh, ice cream and liquid. So
0: yeah, now that that that. I think about it, I believe I, it sounds like that was a big influence on uh, Bruner's uh, Crucible of Time.
1: Probably. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I
0: I would imagine. And so the nebulas, um, so the nominees were Black Easter, Stand on Zanzibar, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Picnic on Paradise by Joanna Russ um Passmaster and then rite of passage by Alexei pension won the the uh, nebula that year now interestingly the way the nebulas worked in the late 60s is that they were held in three locations around the country at the time uh, which is funny because they obviously were not zooming in 1968 i don't know if they were calling in votes from each location but the west was held at disneyland The South was in New Orleans, and then the East was in New York City, all on March 15th and 14th of 1969. And so a couple other notable books of science fiction from that year that were not nominated, Masks of Time by Robert Silverberg, I believe was the the novella winner for the Hugo, Um, but kind of an important book in in the genre because it like had standalone publishing i believe uh wizard of earth sea of course premiered which is um and one of the reasons why i didn't really kind of read it or put it into this discussion is because i i consider it i mean it is fantasy and i know there's you know the crossover between fantasy and science fiction and i like the Earthsea books but i'm not a huge i loved fantasy when i was um a teenager and now i can't get into fantasy like that kind of high World fantasy, it's very hard for me these days because I find it very boring. Uh that being said, Wizard of Ursey is a prototype in that genre and has to be extremely respected. Um, Lisa, I'm sure you have thoughts on Wizard of Ursy.
1: Oh, I I think it's great. I'm also actually not a gigantic fantasy fantasy fan, but I think that these are cool stories. And um, what else can we say about them historically? It's sort of is right. I mean, it's an interesting moment for. It's a very pre-feminist Le Guin in the early Wizard of Earthsea books. I mean, I guess I, if you like fantasy, you're going to love these books. I think they're great. Um, they're pretty multicultural. I think she does pretty good trying to think about a racially diverse future. Um, uh, but she herself said the first ones are very patriarchal in nature and that it's hard for her to go back and read or was hard for her to go back and read them afterward. But uh, they had the seeds that, of something that became you know, really well loved. So and and that she herself really evolved over time. I think that's cool
0: right we also have um arthur c Clarke's 2001 being a big thing i think it didn't get a lot of uh love at the awards because it was connected to the movie um however uh the novel itself is great i love the series even if it has the same ending as independence day um which is a little weird um i've never read a gift from earth by larry niven i have um mixed feelings on Niven as a writer. I think he evolved quite a bit over time, but those early Nivens, some of them are very hard to read. Um, Politically speaking these days, uh, there are almost no women characters to be seen Um, in those early books. They're kind of hard in that way. Uh, Peter S. Beagle's The Last Unicorn. I haven't read it, but I know it's a big one from that year. And Robert Sheckley's Dimension of Miracles. If you haven't read Robert Sheckley, there's Douglas Adams before Douglas Adams, you know, and a lot of the old sheckley It's really great, weird stuff, and of course, and McCaffrey's Dragonflight was a big one in that year. Again, these are books that I read the those uh, Dragons of Pern stories and all those dragon books when I was a teenager and loved them, but I haven't gone back to them since um but i lisa you have feelings in those books right um and, oh and i read them that.
1: as a kid yeah i loved them as a kid i thought they were awesome so yeah. um i think they're cool i like the way they sort of shift like you think it's a fantasy novel but then you realize that they're really science fiction stories and um so i think that that's pretty cool i like the way she seems to weave the two together and sort of shifts your perspective around on those i haven't reread them in a million years but you know who didn't want to flock a little dragons when they were a kid to hang out with i mean
0: yeah they are very cool adventure books they you know yes when you're like hiding them under your desk in social studies class in seventh or eighth grade it's perfect i think that's literally how
1: i read them too that's so funny yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: um all right so for the books we are covering we're going to start with picnic on paradise um uh lisa can you give us an introduction on this book and then we'll open the floor
1: Right. Okay, so Picnic on Paradise is, is marvelous and it is um it came out the same year as The Barbarian, which was a short story about one of um Joanna Russ's characters, um a, a a woman named a middle-aged woman named uh Alex who goes from being married to a pirate to a priest to a thief to an agent for uh the for a future time travel agency. And then I'm not going to tell you what happens after that. But right, so this is the first novel in the Alex stories. Russ had written a couple of these short stories prior to this, very well received. People really, really enjoyed them. Um, and Alex herself is a very cool, sort of uh, very 60s, very feminist rethinking of the female fantasy hero and especially of uh, C.L. Moore's Jarrell of Jory, right? And whereas Jarrell of Jory was a badass, but also like super hot and really young and, Everyone wanted her. Alex is great. She's middle-aged. She's battle-scarred. She's um, getting her postmenopausal menopausal waist on, um, but she's still a badass and can outthink and outfight everyone. And I think it's really exciting that we have this story because it's a novel about this woman. She's a barbarian from the past. She's been lifted through time into the future to help get a group of colonists from point A to point B on a planet at war. And she's skilled at this because she's from 5,000 years earlier and she knows how to deal with crazy crazy um weather and geography and she doesn't need the same kind of science and technology but she's very civilized and very rational and she has some interesting thoughts about the people around her and about the future and i don't know what else to say it's a
0: great book yeah brian (laughs) was this your first time reading picnic on paradise it was my first time reading it
2: it was actually my second time um And I did like it a lot more. The first time, I kind of bounced off of it, but I at that point, I don't think I had read any of the Alex stories previously, which something about Picnic on Paradise, it is a standalone. However, um, if you just read it by itself, you don't get the impression that actually the series used to be fantasy. Mm. Like the first few Alex stories are, yeah. are kind of sword and sorcery adjacent, but then she gets transported into this far future other planet and it can and it suddenly becomes science fiction um yeah. and also i was less acclimated with russ um i have a i've kind of an unusual relationship with russ because I often find her fiction to be caustic to not a fault but not really to my liking but i really like her nonfiction writing a lot actually i think she's a very uh a very funny and very um viciously funny writer uh especially in like her criticism and in, in uh book reviews but um, viciously yeah.
0: funny. I see. Yeah.
1: But yeah, this I is. I would act- say her her stories are viciously funny too. It's interesting that you like that causticness in one medium but not another. I mean, it's yeah. cool. It just Yeah. In her fiction,
2: in her nonfiction, not really in her um fiction. I did I did yeah. have to write about one of her other novels, um, we who are about to, which is also very short. These are both very yeah. short novels, like almost yeah, novellas. So- but um, I was like, oh god, this is so like this is like a black hole of a novel i don't know if i'm gonna get out of this oh
1: wow that's so funny i think that that's the most brilliant novel i love it i mean it's about a bunch of guys who want to force men to reproduce in a totally hopeless thing so the woman kills them all like it's very logical i'm sorry (laughs) that made you uncomfortable though (laughs) i i I
2: i respect its abrasiveness i did not enjoy it though I well, think you were really going to be the be one forced to it, reproduce. So... No,
1: it's not. It's about forced reproduction. And it's the conversation we had nat had to have then. I'm sorry. You don't have to like it. I'm not sure she wants you to like it, right? I mean, it's Brad. an uncomfortable book.
0: No, but... I think Russ likes cr- create. It seems like from everything I've read, I've only read this one novel so far. But it seems like that was part of her style was was to to kind of aggressively make people uncomfortable through... You know she's not alone in that harlan ellison like to do that too you know yeah so
2: yeah. picnic on mm-hmm. picnic on paradise is more accessible um mm-hmm. and like, like you said it's very simple i mean it's basically it's like an escort mission in a, in a video game or as uh yes. I kind of, or as great I, way
1: of putting it or, or as
2: i kind of kind of started to think about it the the inherent um perils in babysitting because that's basically what she's doing for most of these people yes like they don't they don't yeah. know what the hell they're doing she has to yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's I think you made
1: a great, oh yeah, point though that you have to. It helps to have read one or two of the short stories first because I had that same thing. The first time I read this novel, totally didn't, totally left me cold. But after reading the Alex stories, thought it was hilarious. So yeah, well, it, it helps.
0: Yeah, I haven't read the story, so but I will say the novel worked for me, and I thought it was sneaky okay. good, in the sense that it's it does seem just like the setup is like just an adventure story. But there's lots of little subtle ways that Russ is using the novel to make points. And for one thing, I read it back to back with um, the Terraformers, uh, Annalee Newitz, uh modern novel. And it was an interesting um, juxtaposition because just the planetary science things that were going on in Russ's book, it's much more subtle, obviously, because it's not the point of the book, whereas in Terraformers, it's kind of the point. But I think there's so many things she's subtly saying about gender and class and all these things um, in an adventure story. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated about uh, this novel and where I thought it was really, really good is that we we're, we're getting um, kind of a, you get the adventure story and the adventure story is fine and works, but you're getting all these like subtle things. And that's what I think makes it kind of above the rest in and,
1: and one of those yeah. books. Lisa oh yeah no i like I I, I like the way you put that because that helped me just sort of figure out like something I really liked about it like detail wise like it was subtle and I didn't know what to do with it like but I love that like everyone in her future is sort of brownish because you know humanity has interbred and we, we are, we're darker skinned overall but then like when they hire the media the media guy, to the media adventurer who's not, he's a, just really a media figure to help them. He's white and he's blonde and he glows compared to everyone. And I was like, oh, he's Flash Gordon, right? But of course he's this parody of Flash Gordon because he's not really capable. He's not an adventurer. He doesn't have any military or sports skills and um, can cast can, a back on Alex. But then of course has to try to like fall in love with her and turn that into a romance so he can control her too. But he's not a good Flash Gordon
0: guy he is not. But yeah
1: like, like that kind of subtle critique like she never makes a big deal out of it but like I read I reread this while I was showing flash Gordon to my students and it was just like I was like oh this is on purpose I bet
0: yeah right and one of the things that I think this book rewards is rereads and studies and and you know so my system when I write a book review is that I pull out quotes that I like dog your pages when I'm reading and then I like I'm going to go back and then I type up the quotes so I can really kind of ingest the book and for me picnic paradise really came alive when I was looking through it again and when I was like I enjoyed it when I was reading it but I really really got like I I when I looked back at it and was pulling out quotes I was like oh I see what she's doing here and I really think that um uh, picnic on paradise is a book that kind of maybe would have done better um in the award season in that year if it you know it's a book that rewards like looking at it multiple times so it may not have had a chance to 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 do better in a year where you're voting on it when obviously most people have just read it that one time and we have the hindsight of being able to look back on a book yeah. 50 years later and say like what was the impact and we can look at how it related to her whole career, for example. Yeah. yeah and yeah. the importance well, that Joanna Russ plays.
1: So Yeah, it's definitely uh, doesn't let you, you know, it, it, never forget that Joanna Russ trained under Vladimir Nabokov, right? I mean, you can feel the postmodern goodness in her writing, for sure.
0: I am not familiar and, with this person. Oh, yeah. she went the,
1: to, You don't know who Vladimir Nabokov is? He wrote Lolita. Oh,
0: okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's so he guy. was one of the important early <laughs> that guy. Yeah,
1: early important early postmodernist, like along with John Bart. I'm a trained 20th century person. I am taking you guys down dork literature lane. But for oh, people who care yeah. about the history of literature, he's one of the architects of postmodernism. And Russ trained with him, as did Thomas Pynchon. So uh, okay. I think that some of the difficulties that you feel, Russ and Pynchon write a lot alike, neither are enjoyable the first time through at all, and sometimes not the second. And both yield a lot though on rereading. And I, I always just, I got to think it's that similar literary training.
0: All right, so um, any final thoughts on uh, Joanna Russ or Picnic in Paradise and their role in 1968? Because whereas I think it was important, and I'm really glad, Lisa, that you spoke up and that I, I read it because I think it's important to this year, I still don't think I'm going to put it at the top of the list, but I would definitely put it as it is, it, is, it is important and has value in the discussion of this year. It would be my final thoughts on picnic on paradise um Lisa do you have any final thoughts on on this one
1: um I'm, I'll am i go with that I, I'm definitely going to put it in my top five and maybe even my top three whether it's like in terms of science fiction history or even feminist history like the most important work out there uh it's I think a warm-up for some of the more important and heavy-hitting stuff that happens later but a delightful warm-up and you know just go to back to Brian and the whole young people reading old science fiction thing Um, You can try to bring students into Joanna Russ through like the later, the more elaborate and more feminist stuff or through Alex. They love Alex. They love Alex. Everyone loves Alex.
2: Well, Alex, um, it is adventure fiction. I mean, you can read a straight adventure and still enjoy it. Um, Absolutely. I think it went at the time um, kind of not noticed because it is. It is so short and it is so straightforward on its face, but it also, I feel like I kind of get like, not an echo, but like almost like a prelude to like what Tiptree would do later. Um, Russ and James Tiptree, Mm -hmm. Alice Sheldon. um, They're kind of, I don't want to say similar, but they kind of take this, they have this worldview of if you watch a woman's day-to-day life long enough, it becomes horror. Yes. Right? Um, especially in the case of Tiptree, who is like one of the most fucking, um, disturbed authors that I've had to come across from complicated
1: woman for sure, right? a A very,
2: very disturbed, um, very depressed, uh, fearful woman, you know? Yes.
1: Whereas Russ came a little younger, came of age in a little bit more supportive moment for women and, you know, didn't just train with Vladimir Nabokov, also took classes with Kate Millett and, um... I think, uh, Betty Friedan and like, you know, really knew all the major feminists of her time and, and had that kind of connection and support in a way that, that tip tree probably didn't coming up 20 years earlier.
2: And going back to James Blish for a second, she also weirdly enough was very fond of Blish. I mean, she, the two knew each other, but yeah, well, it's, it's funny because Blish was not a feminist. I mean, he like politically, they were almost complete opposites, um, Mm -hmm. Blish was very much a conservative, but also Russ was very supportive of him. But um, technique-wise, they do have kind of a kinship. So
0: on that level, it does make sense. That's
1: mm-hmm. kind well, of interesting.
2: Well, it's interesting
0: of... when you look at some of the, like Le Guin being a big fan of PKD's work, and, and I've talked about this ad nauseum on, my, on Dickheads, but mm-hmm. the class difference between the two and the fact that they were in the same high school graduating class and never met, Um, and you know, one went to Harvard and one worked at a record store and and and
2: dropped out of, I think he dropped out of Berkeley,
0: uh, or he got kicked out of UC Berkeley, um, Dick. No, he did Well, he, he just didn't go back. Um, he, he, he tried going, but, but one of the things is, is if you look, for example, their high school yearbook, like Ursula's in it and Phil isn't because he had so many health issues that he was an early homeschooler. (laughs) the last Mm -hmm. semester he didn't even go the last semester to to high school so Mm -hmm. it's just such a weird difference between the two but you see like and they're you know he didn't even write a female character as a lead until Le Guin challenged him with the last novel he finished before he died and he had to base it on his daughter you know for you know whatever but you just see the the difference and it's so weird the different i see what you're saying about blish and and russ it's a it's an interesting combo that they were so different and she was fans of their work i'm a huge fan of neil asher as a modern science fiction writer but i can't stand his right-wing views he and i have discussed this i love his fiction but i i just i get a headache following him on twitter i can't um <laughs> But so it happens, you know,
1: you know, yeah. And also we polarize a lot more on politics now than people did in the 60s and 70s. And I mean, I realized there was polarization with, yep. the, you know, rebirth, of radical politics and division over Vietnam and stuff. But like, you know, people didn't marry across religious lines, then they did marry across political lines, right. And and now we're sort of in the opposite space. So I do think we 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 take our politics with our art a little more intensely Joanna Russ would have thri- thrived in this moment she would have absolutely thrived but she would have she
2: would um, have been a she would have been a fun time on Twitter I'm sure um oh,
1: man can you imagine she uh, would almost make me consider looking at it occasionally
0: all huh. right so the next book wow. cu-
1: okay <laughs> I'm
0: gonna yeah, move speaking on. of dick
2: this is a this is a segue right
0: <laughs> well I was of to hold do androids a little bit later but um it, uh, I was hoping to do camp concentration next um mm which oh right yeah yeah
2: um oh god someone else was supposed to talk about that but now i have to talk about it because i actually um i did have to write about it extensively
0: (laughs) yeah so brian go on camp concentration thomas dish
2: thomas m dish it was like his fifth novel um and he would have been all of 26 when he wrote it which is crazy to me um it is an epistolary novel and that is a series of diary entries by this guy who um, he starts out as a as a political prisoner. This would be kind of in a near future 1970s, where apparently Robert the
0: McNamara vi- is president.
2: Yeah, Mac- McNamara <laughs> is president, apparently, um, somehow, which is really funny. because um, post-1968, that sounds so implausible. But um he starts out as a political prisoner and he basically makes this deal where he goes to this underground um quote-unquote camp. Uh, camp Archimedes where he offers to basically be the eyes and ears of the camp staff and he talks with the the camp um people there who are also no surprise, mostly political prisoners and people who did something bad maybe in the military and they offered to be brought here as like an alternative to like you know conventional prison and it turns out that the the science fictional aspect is that, All these people, including the protagonist, he realizes kind of oddly late, are being experimented on with an advanced form of syphilis, the primary side effect of which is that they gain um, abnormally, like, high intelligence. But because it's syphilis, and because this particular form of syphilis is untreatable, they will eventually in, like, eight or nine months die, like, horribly, so that is that is the conflict of the novel.
0: You're really smart if that, for a little bit.
2: And, it, and if it, it and sounds if that like sounds, flowers
1: for Algernon,
2: I was going to say it sounds a bit like flowers
0: for Algernon. It's not really. Um, I didn't well,
1: think. No, I know.
0: The the Hollywood pitch that no one would ever buy is flowers for Algernon meets Punishment Park. Um, <laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah, that sounds right um, when you say that. But, um, but it, no it, it's, one it's been, would buy that pitch.
2: It, it's it's flowers for all, Drawn if it was a very thinly veiled criticism of the war effort in Vietnam. It is a Vietnam novel, basically, you know, without any actual going there. It talks um,
0: a lot about overpopulation as well.
2: Yeah, that too. Um, it is unabashedly of its time. Like, no, if, if, what... like, like if you were to read it, you'd be like, oh, I can smell like the 1967 slash 1968 on it, just
0: without anyone telling me. Well... It... Um, I think the thing that makes it most that is uh, like the one world building element that I, and I made a joke about Robert McNamara being present, but that's, you know, that's something that if you were writing a science fiction novel in 1971, you're already past that, right? You're already past that idea. So it really places it in time, just like, you know, if you're writing a novel in 2015, you know, you might place your, novel before the idea that we could have donald trump as president and then we did right and um i i think that's one of the things that's interesting about camp concentration now me personally i do not like epistolary novels they tend to annoy me i admit that that that's just like a personal pet peeve um mostly because i think writers cheat on it uh like like stephen king never cheats on first person and he's like really good at it like dolores claiborne is like an example of like, he never loses the voice of that character through the whole novel. Um, Later, his recent hard case crime novel, like that character gets older and smarter as the book goes on. Um, But my problem with Camp Concentration is, is that it was very clearly Thomas Dish sitting down, writing an epistolary novel, trying to get this guy's voice. And that was my one thing that I did not appreciate about the book. That's why I gave it three stars and didn't really like connect to it totally because I got, constantly was taken out of it. That being said, it is an excellent commentary on the time. I just didn't personally connect to it. <laughs> it
2: it could not have been, it, I mean, you it had to be written before the, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson announcing that he wasn't gonna run for reelection, the, the trash fire that was the DNC in 1968. Um, also yep. very pre-AIDS. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if Dish would have written this novel. If he wrote it in like 1987 instead of 1967. But mm-hmm. um, and the the diary format, it is kind of weird because some of the time I did get the impression that Dish was just trying to impress us that he that he was a very precocious, um, very well read, you know, 20 something who is kind of kind of like Delaney, who is like a oh, borderline prodigy.
0: PKD, pkd was doing that all the time
2: where it's like yeah I, I know more than you do which okay to be fair you probably do but you don't have to <laughs> there is a novel that has to be you know written and then read here with a story and characters you know and there are some characters but surprisingly little story but it is a short novel so
0: there is that lisa have you have you read cam concentration you know What
1: i have never ever read it and so i'm learning so much here um <laughs> and I'm uh I'm not sure that I'm gonna read it I guess after this I mean you know if I come across it and I have time but it sounds like I don't well, need to rush it I've too always kind of wanted to but the more I'm listening to I mean it sounds cool but like if I'm gonna do a Vietnam War novel I'm gonna read like the forever war again because that's a great novel or like, like the fifth time
2: so. but why not the forever War's great <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah um well that's why it's too bad that Paul wasn't able to be here because Paul is a big stand for um for camp concentration he loves it so okay. um and that's one of the reasons he was that was his entry in this was that he argued that that was the best of 68 um -hmm. i me personally i just it didn't i didn't dislike it i just thought it wasn't as powerful as some of these other ones speaking of lisa how about you introduce nova by samuel R. Um, r Delaney to the
1: folks? oh gosh okay it has been a minute since i've read nova here so um it's uh, very much a space opera. It's one of Delaney's less experimental novels. So like Russ, this is sort of early in a new wave artist's uh, of, I'd say, although I think the themes are very uh, contemporary of the moment. And I think one of the things that's really important about this novel is it's a precursor to cyberpunk, right? Um, that this is very much a cyborg future where uh, work, where it's interesting, where the solution to Alienation from labor, from so the age-old Marxist problem, well, 100-year-old at that point, Marxist problem of alienation from labor, right? That it's solved through, uh, through technology and through these cybernetic connections to networks and to, to technologies and to each other, and that that's exciting and fulfilling in Delaney's world. And of course, right, that would be Gibson's brilliance 15 years later would be to turn that formula inside out and to show us how empty and meaningless and exploitative cyborg life is. So that's sort of my big thing. Um, that's sort of my take on Nova. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's a quest story. I don't really know what else to say about it because again, I hate to give away the plots of quests.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and I think one of the things with Nova and and I'm, I'm hit or miss with, with Delaney because as much as I respect what Dahlgren does, I find Dahlgren a very, very, very hard book to read. And, and, Whereas Nova is one of the most readable Samuel Delaney books. Um, mm-hmm. I read it for the first time for this podcast, although it, cause it's one of the Delaney's I was saving, um, you know, um, and, and, and here's the thing about this one. It's a far future book. It's set in 3172. Um, and one of the things I like about it is society feels very different. It feels like a very different future. It doesn't just feel like our time set with different technology. It doesn't feel like that. It feels very different. The world building is great. And a lot of the things that um, I think we hit on Dahlgren for, or a lot of people that have hard times with Dahlgren, are things that he does well in this book. Building the characters, the the world, Um it's not an uncomfortable novel. It's a fun novel to live in, right? It helps
1: when your lead character is not amnesic and potentially insane, right? I mean, it's right. a much more stable narrator. And it's a pretty familiar space opera plot, right? But this is sort of, I think, the new way of doing one of the things it did very well, which was to take like old pulp kind of tropes and stories and make them feel exciting and fresh. And like you said, new, I mean... Because really, it's all about like two houses struggling for power and one has to get the unobtainium or whatever you want to call it. But this is what we're talking about, the mythical element to shift the balance of power. Right. It's also the story of Dune when I explain it like that. Um, But (laughs) uh, but, you know, you're right. It's very dune Delaney's futures are freaking weird. They're weird and they're unique to his real. They're really his perspective. Right. I mean, you know, when you're in a Delaney future, there's no doubting it. And it's not just because there are like. Guys attracted to each other because they chew on their nails, although that is often there as well.
2: I was well, going to say, actually, um, my first my history with Delaney is kind of funny because my first Delaney was Dahlgren, which is such a horrible idea. I would not recommend that I to anybody, Dahlgren, unless it's you're hard. coming. I, I also love Dahlgren. It, it is. Uh,
0: but it's, it's a, a challenging read.
2: It's a challenging read. Also, I was disappointed reading early Delaney, like sixties Delaney, that it wasn't just like gay sex. I was like, <laughs> like very. <laughs> it's true. I was like, this does not have like the sexiness of Dahlgren. I'm so thrown off. But um, but Nova is what I would recommend for someone's first Delaney because it is so like Picnic on Paradise. It's basically an adventure novel. Yeah. Um, except Delaney really works with the far future setting for the most part it really does feel like it could be set like a thousand years from now except for the gender relations which are kind of odd um well
1: he he was still passing as straight and married to marilyn hacker at that point right so yeah the female
2: the female characters in in nova are kind of ciphers um god what's her name uh the sister of the villain um ruby red she's kind of a nothing character um there's a member of the the ship the spaceship crew you know on the quest to find. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna I'm not gonna call it unobtainium, but let's face it. Um, it, she she is just she's like a walking. Already
0: dead, and that's fine. I know. she's like she's like a
2: walking. <laughs> yeah, I'll piece try of to find it right? Yeah, but like aside from Ill- that,
0: Illerion. It's it's I L
2: It is. It is. It is kind of like. It is kind of like still
1: unobtainium. It's still Yeah.
2: It is a very rare, very hard to get material that simultaneously is incredibly useful. Um, Delaney actually considers the economics of this far future setting, which most authors don't. And um, and like you said, the fact that cybernetics, the fact that pretty much everyone has, it's like it's like called a jack, right? Where they have like a thing in their arm they can connect with machinery, mm-hmm. and that's like, it's like, um, it's actually like an optimistic take on cyberman cybernetics because right, right cyberpunk like actual original cyberpunk most of it is very technophobic mm-hmm. and kind of that's like- my point i and think very- that that
1: was gibson's trick right he just flipped the new wave yeah. yeah
2: kind of it's very like fearful about um kind of like capitalism run amok whereas delaney is like well actually what if yeah. cybernetics yeah. actually solve the problem of alienation from like one's labor yeah that'd be neat <laughs> it would be neat and it's cool which is kind of the novel as a whole like it's pretty neat (laughs) (laughs) i think that's exactly
1: how i would say it too it's pretty neat yes
2: it's not an emotionally demanding novel it's not like one of delaney's like more intellectual or more like i said emotionally involving novels but it is a fun read
0: yeah well and in this day and age the fact that the author is black and gay is is um you know not a big deal it's not something that anyone but in 1968 and from everything that i could tell and i know he was still trying to pass as straight but i think
1: well everyone well, knew well everyone knew,
0: everyone every, knew every, community.
2: everyone yeah. was in the know but also this was before uh, if you look at pictures of delaney circa you know 67 68 he hadn't grown that magnificent beard yet right he had sideburns but he had not grown the beard yet yeah right
0: but I, I what I, I do think that um his representation or his place in this category, even if it's just looking back is very important because uh, I think his role as as a um, as a voice um can cannot be understated because even if he wasn't pushing the boundaries as much as he will in the future do um I think. Delaney's role here is is very important. And um, it's a great, it's a really, really fun book. It's, um, and, and, and just it's one of those neat science fiction pieces that I think like transcends the era and can be considered a master, a, a masterpiece. And, and, and I, it's the first one that we've talked about here, where I will use the M word with masterpiece. I liked *Picnic on Paradise* a lot. It came very close, but this one, I I would say, um, is 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 the M word.
2: Yeah, it, it definitely reads as the climax of that first period of Delaney's career. Again, when he was yes. like a borderline prodigy, he was a very bright, but also very young author, and it was the last novel he wrote before he went on hiatus. It definitely reads like it, though. It, it feels like like the culmination of his. Of what was up to that point like what made him so special mm-hmm.
0: and you know, I think I think yeah. also it, it it, in a weird way where it's not as obvious as like Cam concentration or or Stan in Zanzibar it says interesting things about the time too but not as directly and so you could easily look at this and say like you know it's very Dune-ish well, so, so what is it really saying but we know Dune also says a lot about this time right
2: It does feel more timeless. It could have been published in 1978. No issue. Um, Or even in the 80s. I don't think people would have, you know, thought it conspicuous if it came out. Yeah.
1: It's because it's got that basic pulp plot, and it's easy to take that plot and rework it for the concerns of your own moment, you know? Um, The way we can sort of keep retelling Star Wars stories every decade because you can keep shaping them to fit. But,
0: um... Yeah. Go ahead, Lisa.
1: Nope. I'm I'm
0: good. Okay, so if anything else on Nova, because we have two books left, two main books. Um, and I just I did want to put a shout-out, I forgot to mention His Master's Voice by Stanislaw Lem when I was talking about the ones that weren't nominated. Part of the reason why this book didn't really get nominated for this year is because it took forever to get translated into English and end up here, but it did come out in Europe in 1968. I consider it a novel of 1968. It is not my favorite limb, but I am kind of passionate about this book as being like a very experimental piece because the entire book is about the failure to translate an alien communication through deep space. And it's not a fun book. This is also a challenging book. Like Dahlgren is challenging, but in a different way. And I could see this book bouncing off 99% of the people who try to read it. But me personally, I think an entire book about not being able to translate a language is a fascinating science fiction thing to do. So, so it's
1: an appropriate follow-up to Solaris, is what I'm hearing.
0: Yes. Yes. And <laughs> on page 199, it kind of breaks the fourth wall. I and mean, it just basically talks about like, you know, um it it basically explains the chapter, the title his master's voice like i'm telling you like we are hearing something we cannot even understand because we are so basic and that's very
1: lovecraft isn't it
0: yeah and it's funny because it takes takes almost 200 pages to get there and what i realized when i read that line is i was like wow 98 percent of the people who try to read this book are never going to get to this point they're just going to be like nope um, because a book about all these people just failing to understand language, which, by the way, Ray Naylor just did in an extremely exciting way with Mountains and the Sea, which is an, an, the, the masterpiece of the year, if you ask me. I'll be interviewing him on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, So he found a way to make it exciting. Lem didn't. <laughs> At the same time, I appreciate it. So I just wanted to shout out his master's voice as a book that doesn't really work, but at the same time is impressive. Um, so the last two books, uh one of which of course is Do Androids Dream of Electric Cheap? Uh Brian, do you want to tell us why you think this is one of the
2: why why I think it's books? why I think it's uh to to understate things pretty neat. Um <laughs> so in the futuristic year of twenty twenty one. And in L.A., which is actually not too different from L.A. as we now know it, um, so you have a bounty hunter um, who lives with his wife in like a cramped apartment complex. In this future, quote unquote, future setting, um, animals have almost entirely died out on Earth. I mean, it is basically it is a almost post-apocalyptic scenario where most animals are actually that people have are actually electric um, kind of robots copies of real animals and the bounty hunter he has an electric sheep haha um at the start but he wants to get the money to buy a real animal and not just like any animal but like a big animal like a horse or a cow um as a status symbol because owning a real animal the <laughs> because in because in the setting of the novel owning a real animal is it makes you it's like a class thing right and um so he hunts androids which Exists primarily to serve as slave labor on the off-world colonies. But occasionally there are androids who come back to Earth. And androids are illegal on Earth outright. And if they're found, they're killed. So he goes out in the course of about 24 hours. He has to kill, I think it was six androids. So he can get the money to get a real... I believe it ends up being a... God, what was it? A lamb? It was a... um. Oh, it's not goat. coming to me right now. Goat. a goat, it was a goat, yes um meanwhile, there's a subplot with someone who um is not qualified to move to one of the off world colonies and he unwittingly um houses one of these androids that is in hiding, and so you have these two plots that mostly run parallel to each other um eventually they do intersect and while it sounds like it may be a bit of an action narrative, it's not really. There's not much action. Um, I would actually say there's not even more action than there is in Blade Runner, which, you know, we had to bring up Blade Runner at some point. But um,
1: I
0: really don't. It's, it's a different you know, thing. The, it really two, is. It's The two are the very the two,
2: different. The two are so radically different
0: um, yeah. for the most part. But yeah. It is. Um, I, I think saying it's not that they're not, there's some people that are like it's barely based on the book. I don't think that's true. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. But yeah. there
2: are some no. pretty m- profound differences. But um, everything
1: you've just described could also apply to the movie. But the tone is so different in the book. The, right? the tone. I is, mean, the the, and the, thing the purpose with, of it all and the
2: purpose and um Blade Runner is such an ethereal movie. It is such an easygoing movie if you think about it. Whereas whereas do androids dream of electric sheep is
0: philosophically not- challenging.
2: It's not. It's not Dick's bleakest novel because that would be probably *A Scanner Darkly* or *The Transmigration*, stigma. the or *The three Transmigration stigmata. of*, or the three tra- uh, *The Um The Transmigration of Timothy Archer* also incredibly bleak. But it is up there. I mean the the Earth is screwed. There's no going back. Well, we're post right? World War,
0: post-World War Terminus.
2: Pro, yeah, World War Terminus. That's what it's called. It's not even called World War Three. It is. It is the last one. There cannot be another one. You know, humanity literally does not have the capacity anymore. Um, and it is it is philosophically challenging. It is also unusually, even for Dick, incredibly introspective. I'm trying to think of like other examples among his novels where the main character has internal monologues as much as the protagonist here does. Well, and um, then you also
1: have the religious stuff, all the stuff with mercerism, which you know, and is cut from the movie, which, which radically is... changes the movie.
2: Which totally, yeah, is exclusive to the novel, and it is very strange. It is very hard to explain. Um, there's also the empathy box, which is related to, Merth- Mer- tied to, to um, Mercerism. <laughs> to Mercerism, yeah. Humans on Earth, by and large, have empathy boxes, which basically um allow them to feel certain emotions with con- in connection with Mercer, who is like this messianic figure, except the this religion is rooted in empathy as opposed to, you know, sacrificing oneself to save mankind and all that. Um, empathy being the key word for the whole novel, right? And it's actually kind and of radical that in that That which sense.
1: everyone lacks.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I got a lot of thoughts. And being that I do a whole podcast on Philip K. Deck, and I've done five episodes on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So... I will try not to go too much um, because I've, I, was, I've I was
2: going I was going to say it's going to be very, very hard to like not go on forever about this. My time is
0: limited, but this
2: is this is a novel that there's a lot to say about.
0: Right. And I will say that one of the things about Do Androids Dream is that it definitely was not appreciated at its time, even though it got a, a, a Nebula Award nomination. And it certainly helped that eventually there was a movie ish adaption of, of the book and uh, however for me as somebody who is a serious dickhead who's read nearly everything i have a few that i've held on for the podcast that i still have to read um i think even in phil's oeuvre it is underrated just the levels of things that it's doing we talk a lot about on dickheads was this happy phil was this sad phil when he was writing he was actually in happy phil phase because he and and um, Nancy were recently married when he wrote this. He wrote this and Ubik back to back. Think about that, right? Um, going from this to Ubik in a really short period of time. I always think of, I have a hard time because I don't think of these books as when they were released, but when they were written. And this was written in 66, which is very different for Phil and his situation. But what he was trying to do with this, he's, not, he's thinking post-Earth, post-human and really what do androids dream of electric sheep at its heart is is a warning about losing our humanity that is philosophically what this book is entirely about it does it through humor it does it through machines that control your emotions it does this through you have to get this device to have empathy you're testing the empathy of these people everything is and, you know, Phil was a cat guy. He spent a lot of time looking at his cats and pondering his cats when he was writing this book. <laughs> it's really interesting. That makes so
1: much it. sense. Right. Makes so much sense.
0: And so when you look back at this book in 1968, was everyone figuring out what Phil was laying down? Probably not. As the years have gone by and the times that you look and study this book and my version, my copy of this book is, and you can see, Uh, The highlights, (laughs) the amount of writing that I've done inside the copy of this book is crazy. And I've learned so many levels about what Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is doing on a level that Blade Runner touches on, but there's only so much you can do in the visual medium. When you, and Do Androids Dream is a philosophical, like entry on post-human, it's Phil saying, do not become a post human do not and there's a there's a part, which is the worst crime an Android can commit is con- is convincing us that it's real, because he's terrified of that he's terrified that we will become something that we can not and and look at what we're going through now with Chad GPT, you know. Well, there's also well, there's also the reverse in penultimate truth. By the way,
2: would it be reverse or inverse? The inverse of that with another character who is exclusive to the novel, Phil Rush, who is really important, despite the fact that he's only around for a few chapters. He's a fellow bounty hunter, mm-hmm. and he is actually tricked at one point into thinking that he, who is a human being, is actually an android, and he has like this incredible existential crisis over it.
0: There's like this whole episode with him um well and, and, and as dark as the book gets there's also an entire police station that's robots and don't know it and it's very funny and it's like very
2: it's very strange very funny very hard to explain um there are some right. shocking bits of humor in this novel like some lines that really just come at you but then um dick is actually a pretty funny writer when
1: he oh,
0: was completely underrated him. for his humor Oh, Um, completely. Um, You guys keep
1: talking about this novel as funny. And the one scene that I remember, I didn't get a chance to reread it, is like when Roy and Pris are killing the spiders. And it's like the most horrifying, heartbreaking, awful scene. And so, like, you guys keep talking about the humor. I'm like, well, we didn't. I, I, just, well, we I didn't, just don't remember it. It's well, we didn't bring
2: up. We didn't bring up that scene. I mean, everyone remembers that scene. It, it, it yeah. is like it is so like weirdly disturbing in a way that I don't think had we have ever seen in like a science right. fiction novel before. Then
1: it underscores everything that I think he's trying to say about the lack of empathy, right, in a technological society. There, because they're just sadistic and childish and weird, but also knowing. It's just. All Uncanny Valley in the worst of ways, right? And and we're real close to that Uncanny Valley, which is what's so scary there.
0: And that's the major difference with the movie. Ridley Scott yes. admittedly oh said, Ridley Scott said he'd never read the book. He never finished it. He couldn't finish it. And he thinks Deckard's a, a, um, a replicant and he's definitely not in the book. Um, yeah. And the thing about it is, is that the in the movie, the androids are more human than human.
1: I was gonna say and, the movie argues it, the which, opposite right it yeah, doesn't matter if you're human point. or machine you can have human moments and that's what really matters
0: and it's funny that it's Phil really Alist- hollywood it's Phil not a, Alist- I mean, saw it's, the first 20 minutes because if he saw the first 20 minutes he's like this is great i don't know if he would have been so happy if you i don't know
2: movie. if he would have been happy he would not have been happy with the especially with the theatrical cat he would have been pissed but um the uh, the idea of Deckard being an android, it, it literally does not make sense. Like, I'm not going to get into that rant again. We, I know that I think oh. we've all like brought that up at some point before. It's such a...
1: I, I just don't think it matters. You know, everyone is a made man by capitalism in that movie. So it, who cares what your biological origins are? You're all slaves to the corporation. Yeah. It, well. The... Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty simple capitalist critique there, right? Uh, Hollywood 1.0. <laughs> well, well, we've the, joked well, in about... The
0: movie, well, rewriting 2049 as if if it was like actually a sequel to do androids dream and like it's really hard to try and do that because it's such a different point it's almost impossible yes yeah it's
2: and also the with the movie the androids come to earth more so to look for a way to get around the fact that they have a very limited lifespan in the novel they come to earth they're not really concerned about the lifespan thing they come to earth because and this is what really struck me up like rereading this the most recent um even though earth is in such a shitty state in the novel like it is hard to understate how like how screwed things are the androids think it's better to live in fear on earth as long as they are not slaves Mm-hmm. yeah they would ra- they would rather live in some like really cramped like kind of not cramped actually like abandoned apartment complex on a doomed earth and live continue to live as slaves on some off world planet
1: which i i take their point it's like the one point where i find them very sympathetic in that, the book that is, which is that why is, it's so weird then they become so unsympathetic it's like it, how could you value your freedom but have no empathy i don't get it
2: actually i don't think there's a contradiction
1: necessarily
2: i don't i don't maybe not um it's it's actually very very strange because in the novel people are like obsessed with empathy Mm -hmm. um and they have this visceral reaction to any kind of cruelty against animals which to be fair we should take that more into consideration like people living now but these same people this do not have a problem with slavery, with
1: me, but... <laughs> right? Right. No, I get that. Yeah, I, I, was gonna, I, I get I was, that I was,
2: part of it. But I, but I was going to say these same people have no problem with slavery. They they simply do not consider the fact that there's this right. race of synthetic people who work as slaves. Right. Right. So and it's why, like, is that oh, a contradiction or is there? Oh no,
1: uh, no, that's just human life. Like and we live in that moment now. But my point is the contradiction for me is like, how is it that the the androids can value freedom, but not have any kind the of the lives empathy. of others. Yeah. yeah. It it feels like an interesting, I don't quite it's it's a question it, it that. sits uneasily for me. That's all. It feels a little a, less logical. It's a question
2: it's a question that Dick does not answer like like most questions no. in the novel. He yeah. brings up all these like quandaries and he does not yeah. provide well, a clean answer to them for you know, for most of them.
1: Maybe well, and maybe the point is it's like he's using robots the way that science fiction authors have for since Poe and the man that was used up, right? It's just a reflection to humanity. Um it's more about the human side of things, not the robot side. So we don't have to worry too much about that.
0: And to kind of wrap up Do Android's Dream, I the re- and I'm trying to be sensitive to your time, Brian. Um, so the the reason why I consider it the number two from nineteen sixty eight, and since it's my show, I've I've conveniently put the books into this order. You
2: say, you say what you think is the best for last (laughs) day.
0: Absolutely. But um, so the reason why I think it's number two is because I think. Again, like Picnic on Paradise, it's a book that that does well from rereading and thinking about and all these years later. And I think that at the time, it was very hard for people to see all the tracks that Phil was laying down. I don't even think Phil saw all the tracks he was laying down, well, considering well, Dick, how he wrote most of these books in the 60s.
2: Well, Dick, as far as I can tell, did not feel a special way about Androids. He did not. Um, he just thought he, it was
0: another book. And
2: Then um, again, he apparently was really fond of The Simulator, which most
0: people are like, really? <laughs>
2: like, that's a book you think is one of your favorites? Okay.
0: Um, yeah. Well, it does, it does have the jug band, which is one of the weirdest things that ever happened in a Philip K. Dick book. But yeah, it's like, it but, was just, he treated um, it
2: as just another book that he wrote, but it's like a capital M masterpiece. It's like, how do, you, how do you do this? I don't know.
0: Yeah, and again, I think this is a masterpiece. I think it was laying down tracks that even he didn't even realize he was doing. He's just kind of like shooting off ideas about mercerism and empathy boxes and mood organs. And, you know, he's just in the moment, he's like, oh yeah, a device that dials up, you know, um, you know, emotions. So it, you know, you can set it to watch TV, even if it's boring, you know, and um, all these weird things that he was doing that he wasn't even thinking about, that was just kind of offhanded moments I are a lot of the genius things that happened on, the, on, on, I think of all the books of this year, this is one of the ones that you can just pick apart entire, like, I, I mean, I wrote an entire essay about the first page of this book. So you know, I, 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 I'm the, and the fact
2: that and the fact that he wrote it and Ubik in the span of like a year and is incredible because they're both masterpieces. Like I, I don't know, with a newborn Super, baby
0: in the house, it's like
2: superhuman. But um, okay, we're we're gonna cut it or, off here. Or,
0: or speed, well, or speed. Well, I, as someone who's say, owned
1: you, and operated a baby, you don't sleep that first year, so you may as well write. Like seriously, maybe, I got a ton he, of work done that year. I mean, There's he no apparently
2: <laughs> he apparently did just like write for hours on end. You know, yeah, believe into the it. night or whenever it. he could, which is believable, but um, mm-hmm. equally incredible. Even though I personally am not like a fan of it,
0: is the oh, last one you transitioning us
2: transitioning? I'm trying to transition. Oh, <laughs>
0: doing your
1: job for you, Dave.
2: Stay on looks,
0: Zanzibar.
2: It looks really small there. That's misleading. <laughs> my, my copy is huge, just like dimension wise. Huge.
0: <laughs> it's the '70s Del Rey paperback.
2: I have the. Is it Del Rey or no? It's Tor. I think it's like 2010. Um, yeah. Paperback. It's like really tall
0: and like really wide and it's still long. It, <laughs> okay. This book started this debate because uh, someone, yours truly, said on Twitter that this was the best science fiction novel of the 20th century. And then uh, it was somebody saying it's not even the best of 1968 that started this whole thing. Um, uh, I. Will die on the hill that I think stand on Zanzibar is not only the best science fiction novel of 1968 I think it is the best science fiction novel of the entire 20th century. Um, I think it is a masterpiece with a capital M, I am a john Bruner Stan if I'm being forced to pick I actually think john Brunner is more brilliant than Philip K Dick, even though I've devoted all this time to Philip K Dick. Um, I think Bruner is the bee's knees on many levels. Um, He wrote pulp just like the rest of them, but he also wrote four masterpieces with this intention. I'm going to write books about 50 years from now. One's going to be about environmentalism. One's going to be about overpopulation. One's going to be about race. And one's going to be about computers. Shockwave Rider, The Jagged Orbit, which I've been saving, I haven't read yet. Stand on Zanzibar and The Sheep Look Up. Of the three that I've read, they are all three capital M masterpieces in my mind. Shockwave Rider predicted cyberpunk, it's predicted the internet. But Snail on Zanzibar is the one where holy shit, I'm living in this world all the time. If you've read it, it is written in a Don, it was inspired by John Don Pasos. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it has epistolary parts, it has fake news reports, it has broken up narrative. It's 600 pages. It is a challenging book. I'm not saying it's the most readable or fun book. But God damn, is it brilliant. And it's a lot of people get wrong when they hear it's about overpopulation. Their first thought is it's about how we're so populated that we can't sustainably live on the planet. That's not what it's about. It's about rat pack mentality. It's about how when we get overpopulated, we will start consuming each other, start killing each other. We will exploit each other. We will not be able to handle having that many people. It's not about like, there's no food to eat because we're overpopulated. It's about how we treat each other when we try to pack the world with too many people. That's why I predicted school shootings. That's why it predicted, um, uh, you know, capitalism, like almost near slavery, capitalism, the, the, the um intense fights over borders all this stuff is in this book written in 1968 it is a masterwork i will shut up now and (laughs) yield the floor but i just had to like go off on why i think stand on zanzibar is the greatest science fiction novel of the 20th century bar none um and i will die on that hill um lisa what say you about stand on zanzibar
1: I think it's a great novel. Um, I, I agree with you that it's a really cool, like, science fictional rethinking of Dos Passos. And I actually think, quite frankly, it does a better job than Dos Passos in terms of its management of its own content. Like, I mean, Dos Passos is obviously engaging the issues of his moment in this really cool experimental form, but in a way that, like, there's a reason we don't really read Dos Passos outside the classroom anymore. Like, it's so of its moment Mary that artery. even the neatness of the experiment kind of can't carry it through. Whereas, you know, part of it is we're still living in the moment that Bruner is writing about. He's at the beginning of that moment, right? So uh, to me, it feels certainly more more relevant and equally literary and interesting and experimental. And, um, and I remember reading it and just being so surprised about the race sub-theme in it. I hadn't expected to see that in a white New Wave author so much. And which uh, apparently
0: is what Jagged Orbit is about. And I haven't read Yes.
1: It, so. Yeah. I haven't read Jagged Orbit either. And I, I want to, and I mean, I don't I, I don't know that I should be surprised, but um I and I have mixed feelings too about the sort of race sub theme in it. Um it's both cool and yet unfortunate that a white man feels he needs to use other races to make some of these points. Um so I'm am I'm, I'm torn because it's both mm-hmm. right and feels wrong, if that makes sense. But I like it. I think it's great. I'm. I, I'm sorry. I don't think it's the best science fiction novel. The 21st You haven't read Female Man yet. I have and not read um, it yet.
0: That's true. You know, I haven't read everything. Have
1: you? Have you read Neuromancer? You know, it's like, um, I got a few sure. of my thoughts on these things, but like, but I think it's a great novel. It is absolutely one of the novels I would recommend I recommend all the time to my students to read. Like, I'm like, if you want to really dive into the new wave and do a novel length, because we do a lot of short stories. This is one of the ones I absolutely would send them to because it is so grappling with the things that we still grapple with today, like you said.
0: Mm-hmm. And and look, I know it's a heart. It's, it's, it's quite a flag to plant saying the best of the 20th century. I, I understand that.
1: <laughs> you you I can ad- have your flag. That's totally cool. I'll come visit your island and have a drink with you sometime. I'm just not going to live there.
0: Yeah. Well, no, and I get that neuromancer is is up there and I, I understand why people well look, there's plenty oh. that I could argue for. Oh
1: yeah, but, but this is a great novel. I'll give you that.
0: Brian.
2: Get ready to die on that hill because I disagree. <laughs> but I, I understand the reasoning for it. Um so <laughs> you could teach this in a classroom, and actually you could teach it in a classroom totally divorced from science fiction because Yes. It's actually a late modernist novel. Mm-hmm. Um, in the context of science fiction, like the technique that Brunner was using was new, but it had been tried 30 years earlier, right? And I think actually Blish pointed this out in his, um. he didn't like the novel, by the way, um, in his review of it. He's like, this is extremely retrograde and like De Passos didn't even work with it well. So like, why should Brunner, who at that point, um. Stand on Zanzibar came as like a revelation to people because as far as I can tell Brunner, at least at novel length, people didn't think like he had it in him to produce a novel of like this scale. Um, And it is impressive because like the world of Stand on Zanzibar is kind of recognizable, but also decidedly different in some ways. Like the slang that Brunner employs is actually like very 60s British, but um. It reads like a real place, that is maybe a few timelines removed from us, um, but not that many,
0: right? Bruner wrote it many years before he was actually able to sell it, and in fact, he was trying to pitch Stand on Zanzibar to publishers at Tricon and in Cleveland when they were watching uh, the cage for the first time in '66 when he road tripped there with Norman Spinrad. So, uh, you know,
1: and that's interesting. And Square,
0: Squares on the City, his chess novel, which was his first attempt to do serious science fiction, took four years, four or five years, he started pitching that in 1960. So he was right trying to write this style. He and Dick were on the same track trying to write serious science fiction. And, and Man in the High Castle winning everything was one of the things that helped him like say like, hey, I can write this kind of science fiction. So
2: well, Dick it, continued to write in kind of the pulpy, um, identifiably sci-fi mode where stand on where did but stand on Zanzibar reads as literary. Yeah. Like I agree. this could like this could have, I think, removed like maybe published at a different time, could have actually been published by a mainstream publisher, except like nobody took brother seriously. Up to well, that. Well, I point. think the
0: same is true for High Castle, Man in the High Castle. Which was the first Putnam release for for Dick. So I think there was literary success. In fact, you know, Don Wilheim, like famously, we um Barry Maltzberg told the story on our podcast that he was in the room when Don Wilhelm found out that man in the high castle was nominated for the Hugo and he threw something against the wall and yelled it wasn't science fiction. Because he had rejected the book, by the way. And, and indeed, the, yeah, and
2: indeed, very I don't want to say very similar, similar premise. Um, Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, not usually considered science fiction. It is, but people consider it because it's Roth, mainstream publisher, literary fiction. Would stand on Zanzibar. I respect it. It is a very cold novel, like intentionally. I mean, it is is a cagey um, novel and how it kind of, from as many angles as Brunner could seemingly conceive, examine the psychological ramifications of limi- living in a densely populated first world, um, and on top of that, it's a post-colonial novel which is very unusual for, for SF of the period. Actually, it's still unusual, well, I think now, it, but...
1: But it's starting in that time period. Dune is playing with that, right? And Delaney actually does a lot of colonial and post-colonial stuff. So it's creeping in there. But, but, but in, you're right, it's a forerunner. In,
2: but it's a forerunner, and, and importantly, it it models... It is the real world, but with some major changes, right? It's not set on another planet. It's not set in the far future. Oh, gee, the futuristic year of 2010. Um but there but are it, made it,
0: up nations and stuff.
2: There are yeah. a couple. Yeah, there are a couple uh, a couple fictional nations in there. Yeah. But um, oh, what the hell? Countries get formed and broken up all the time.
0: And um, the first draft of this, though, was written in 1964. And I, I know that that, from that makes research.
1: more. I think that makes actually more sense of its treatment of its African and Southeast nations, um, which I think even four or five years later, you would have to I don't know. It feels a little unnuanced for what's going on at the time in terms of decolonialization. So it, that's it all did, I'm going to say. It and did if you
2: re- try, though, which it's, is more than can be said for a lot of others.
1: Yeah. No. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. There's a. Um, I, I said I have mixed feelings on this one. I think it's both really great and really of its moment. Let's say.
0: And a, I think a lot that's of the it. book. A lot of the book was inspired by road tripping around America with Norman Spinrad, which is really (laughs) I
1: love that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that a lot
0: of the book was inspired by, like, his first trip to America, which he road tripped around the country with Norman Spinrad. So which man, can you imagine being in those car rides? That would be so cool. Well,
2: first off. Well, first off, it would smell Uh, like weed constantly. Um, Yeah. What, Brunner? Yeah, he's British.
1: I know, for somehow I do. I, I think I literally just realized this for the first time ever in my life. That's so okay. funny. Oh, okay. okay, that makes check a out. lot of sense of stuff. Never mind. I'm. I'm. Oh, okay. I'm for what? For what, it's, for what
0: it's worth. because. Oh, well,
1: that makes more sense of the colonial stuff then. The colonial stuff and the. Because the British which would have very... been having their empire was falling apart. He was yeah. a very stuffy
0: oh, British guy, got it. too.
1: Okay. Oh, yeah. this, okay. This makes so much sense of my yeah. mixed feelings about things now. Okay. Well,
0: and his so role much as an English science fiction <laughs> writer was interesting because his success in America, his early success in America, because he published his first novella at like 16, made him not very popular in the British scene because he was more successful in the States than, oh. than in England. So- there was actually a lot of pushback on that. And um, yeah, so I'm eventually, as you can tell, I've done a lot of research into Brunner because I am intending once I finish my PKD stuff that yeah. I don't know if I'm going to go from dickheads to brunettes um, for the next podcast, but I've been thinking about it. So, I kind of uh, like
1: it. That's pretty good for, actually. <laughs> for, for, what
0: it, for what it's worth, the first time I
2: read Stand on Ends Over, which was years ago, um, I just assumed Brunner was American.
1: Yeah, see, I did too, especially like the mimic of Dos Passos and the setting. It all makes so much f- more sense now. The fact no, that so much of it is in New
0: York. And... Because he was such a stodgy British guy. And, you know, his first discovery of science fiction was H.G. Wells in like this massive li- his uncle had this massive library.
2: because
0: well, You know, and it was. Yeah,
2: okay. And,
0: and Kipling... oh, see,
1: all of this is making so much sense because when I'm rethinking about this book, uh, and you were talking, Brian, about the coldness of it. It reminds me of the coldness of some of H.G. Wells's fiction when he's writing from a journalistic perspective, like The Star, which also zips all around the world and keeps giving you little snapshots of things. So, OK, th- th- this whole British thing. OK. See, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the
2: problem with the novel. It's British. That's the one problem. No,
1: it's well, not a problem. It actually <laughs> just helps me understand. It does, it does explain where of- Brenner's coming I from, see- Yeah it helps me understand too why he's the way he's thinking about colonialism and post-colonialism, like in a way that for an American, I was like, this is weird. Um, but for a British person is a hundred percent makes sense.
0: Well, you know? and he also, did, like I said, the British sci-fi community had a lot of issues with Brunner they, like, I've seen fanzine articles mm-hmm. where they're, they've said, you know, he might as well have been American. Um, well, They
1: did not like the Americans, those British new waivers, did they? The,
0: no, but, they but they, they came around to respect him towards the end and towards the end of his career, like, you know, he was seen as the, and it's funny because yeah. And, and I'm telling you, these interviews, when you see him like talk, he's a very stuffy British guy. I love it. Uh-huh. I'm going to go totally look at it.
1: one now. That's fun. Okay, cool. All right. I'll I send you a to, link. I, to I know this to exactly you guys. one
2: to watch. <laughs> I do have uh, to break um, this to you guys. I do. I do have to leave early all right well let's wrap it Um, up because 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 i i have to rush to work now
0: i have to take a shower and then rush to work um brian do you have any closing thoughts you want to give and then lisa and i can close it out
2: um i think that stand on zanzibar deserved to win something it's a it's a gnarly literary experiment i personally don't have a lot of fun reading it as a novel it's more of a tapestry or like what would you call it like a like a um like a like one of those artworks where it's just like there's no single collage. subject it's just a bunch of yeah collage where it's just a bunch of crap on the on the yeah. screen and um but for me the best has to be androids i mean i mean come on um and rereading it didn't change my mind about that but given what was nominated and even what was not nominated actually this is a pretty strong year it's not like and i've written about this it's not like 1953 which was insane Um, but 1968 it is like the climax of the new wave it was like the height of the new wave at it's like most important and there was some major works coming out of it and um, yeah I'm, I'm glad to end up I'm, doing I'm, a 1953 episode aren't we eventually uh, probably yeah. it is the 70th <laughs> anniversary so I think that's a neat idea and there's a lot all to right, talk about
0: alright yeah, that a lot of important short stories happened that year. A lot,
2: and a lot yeah. of great novels. Actually, like a yeah. shocking number of them are still in print and talked about. But yeah, Demolish um, Man won, right? Yeah, it won the first Hugo. It
0: beat out City. Sad, but they're both good. They're both they're really both good. good. They're both good. All right. So uh, on that note, Brian, thank you for your so, time. I will get uh, we'll get Lisa's final comments on 68 and then I'll close it out. but thank you for your time, Brian. We'll have you back again. Um, yep I'm
2: gonna I'm gonna rush out like a madman, but it's been right. great being here for like the past have whatever. Good, have
0: a good day at work from us. It's gonna be it's a long day. Meeting you, Brian.
2: But yeah, yeah hopefully this will not be the last time. Um, no it will not it but- will it will not be the last time. Who am I kidding um <laughs> but yeah, see you
0: all later at some point. Yeah, thanks Brian and um uh thanks for your feedback. Lisa, what's your final thoughts on 1968?
1: All right. 1968 was I mean, it really is, I agree. It's a definitely a peak new wave year. Like <clears throat> all of these books are are dealing with issues that were were just sort of becoming the main issues in society and and many of them are still with us today. Overpopulation, perhaps being the one that is not, but you know, um allow our Supreme Court enough time and take away all our birth control, and we'll be right back to overpopulation. But um, no, seriously, it's such an amazing year because it's such a snapshot of the way science fiction is transitioning uh, to a more complex literary mode, both thematically and experimentally. Um, I find it still, I'm I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that I haven't read Alexi Panchin's Rite of Passage, but it seems to me in a year when there's so many other amazing literary experiments with so much rich content, that a story that I read the plot, which feels very simple in some ways, about a boy and girl coming of age and realizing that their society is corrupt and and that they hope they can change it later, definitely has a Hunger Games vibe. And I'm totally cool with that, but it feels simple but maybe in a moment when all the other books are so complicated and are showing you what a mess the world is and don't really offer an easy way out maybe like the fact that Panshin was like you know there is hope for the next generation and maybe they'll figure it out like you know maybe that felt really good to people also i haven't read it it's probably like mind-blowingly i now i'm excited i want to go find it because like if that won the nebula in a yeah. year when like Nova and stand on Zanzibar was up, do Android's dream picnic on paradise. Like my goodness, it must pack a punch and I want to go find it. Why is this thing out of print?
0: Why is it out of print is a good question. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and obviously I, I already staked my claim on which one I thought was best, but for the year in general and why I think it's a, you know, I, I did talk about it being a hinge and I do think it's great. And this year, you know, is is so powerful. And so I do think eventually I'll try to to read all of them. So I, I agree with you. I want to see what tension was doing that, you know, like held a candle to all these great books. I just couldn't get it in time. <laughs> so, I
1: know, I know. And like I said, it's probably really great. And like, we're all going to be sad we didn't talk about it at all.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and on that note. So, uh, yep. well, you know, in the future we may do other years, but I, I, uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming, Lisa, back to do 1968. I think it's, uh, it's really valuable to look back at these periods and see, you know, obviously you and I both believe in teaching the history of this genre. Um, and I think that this was an important year and that's uh, valid for discussion. All right, folks, if you made it this far, you're you're a crazy, serious nerd, and I appreciate your time, follow, go to uh, listen to Lisa's other episodes if you haven't already seen those, uh, and Buy the Future is Female, Volume 2, wherever books are sold, because it's super, super important, and um, yeah, thanks a lot, folks. Lisa, anything else?
1: Uh, that's it. Thanks so much, Dave, for having me on. And thanks to everyone for listening to us talk about 1968.
0: All right. And on that note, see you later, folks.